Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 28 of Cardboard Time. This is Arwin. Hi, and this is Craig. Welcome back, Craig. Good to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be back here. And we actually got together for a birthday party of mine uh, yesterday, which was awesome. Not a huge amount of games played, but we did get some out to the table. Yeah, it was a good time, good crowd. I'm glad I was able to make it. And I was glad that you were able to make it. And we will talk about a couple of those games here in a minute. But first, we have to talk about one of our favorite subjects, the beer of the day. And my beer of the day was the Dirty Chai Honey Brown Ale from Woodcock Brothers Brewing in Wilson, New York. I visited my parents for a few days about a week ago for my birthday, and we went there for dinner, which they had fantastic food, uh, great beef on wax sandwiches, these pretzels, uh, spent grain pretzels that were to die for with a beer cheese sauce. The beer uh, blended a honey brown ale with espresso and chai tea concentrate, and it had wonderful spice notes to it, uh, espresso on the front, honey brown in the middle, and then chai on the back end. And they all complemented very well. Uh, It really kind of made a a very nice mixture. I never would have thought that this would have been so good, but I was really intrigued, and I ordered it as part of my flight. And I definitely don't regret it. An excellent beer, and I gave it a 4.25 rating. Was that sweet at all? Um, That all sounds individually interesting to me, but it almost sounds like that would have been like a really sweet beer. It wasn't overwhelmingly sweet. It was, it, it had a little sweetness, and I think it was just enough that it wasn't overpowering. Sounds really good, yeah. Yeah, it it, it kind of let the flavor shine without being, you know, just too overly, because you, you can get too overly sweet with some of these things. Yeah, you expect some of that with the honey brown, but add the chai and just don't know where that's going. But no, it sounds good. So what about you? What did you uh, pick? I have one of my favorites here on the rare occasions that I can find it, which is Pliny the Elder from Russian River Brewing Company in Santa Rosa, California. So this is one I seek out every time I'm in California. Um, It does not get distributed here in Ohio. It's a double IPA at at 8%, which is a little bit low for that style. Um, This beer just has incredible body, incredible flavor. It's just balance, front to back balance. Um, Fresh fruit aromas on the nose and that leads straight into the palate. Um, Good malt flavor for a double IPA, it's not hiding it all really good mouthfeel it's got a creamy texture long finish great flavor from that blend of hops but really lacking that bitterness you get out of a lot of the double ipas very restrained for double ipa but just an overall incredible beer i just love this one that sounds really interesting and i know a lot of people stay away from the ipas and especially the doubles uh for just being so incredibly bitter so i i think that hits where I really like to have an IPA, a nice balance. You have some hop flavor in there, but not like overpowering. I need to know I need to know where you get this because I need I definitely need to try this. So I tell you what, when you are in Sonoma County between visiting your uh wineries, uh hit up the Dry Creek Valley General Store, get a nice sandwich and the few times I've been in there, they've just had it sitting there in the cooler. 
So I grabbed Ooh. half a dozen of them and they came home with me. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that sounds amazing, Craig. And I think we're going to segment over to the Shelf of Shame, which you helped a little bit with this weekend. The Shelf of Shame is at 150. It is down two. So back around where it was before Origins happened and the... Uh, you know, the, the floor fell out, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, three new additions this week. I picked up Steamworks from Jamie's shop, Swords and Boards, up in Willoughby, Ohio. It looked very interesting, and it was a, kind of a flea market setup where people brought in their used games. Uh, I took a look at the back of it. The front of it kind of intrigued me. Took a look at the back, and then... I said this this might be of interest because I like a good engine builder and it was it was definitely interesting worker placement uh, some engine building and I definitely need a couple more plays on that to discuss further Rove which I'm going to talk about in a little bit from Button Shy and then third one of my most anticipated Kickstarters came in and that was Cartographer's Heroes. Uh, which I got to play, and that really adds in a lot more of what you love from the original cartographers. New scoring conditions, they, the heroes make sense, and they add in a little bit extra to the game. Uh, colored pencils as well, which are very welcome and make a very pleasing board after you're done with them. So I need to play the new maps, but this is... Just basically more of what is already an excellent game. And as far as what I played, I played five games. Uh, the aforementioned Steamworks, Rove, and Cartographer's Heroes. We also played Gladius, but we played it with Jamie. And I think we're going to save that for the next episode when we talk with her. And then finally, I played Lawyer Up, which I will talk about later in this episode. And we also did get to play Quacks of Quedlinburg yesterday. Obviously not a shelf of shame item, but a big hit for everyone at the table. You know I don't like this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is good. Um, this is only my second play of it, and the first time was with you. Was that 2019 um, Origins? Yep, at the hotel. Yeah, so this was good. Um definitely just confirmed that uh i really enjoy this one i have it it's still in shrink wrap it has been since um basically right after that that trip and um need to get it out more yeah it's it's one that i wasn't sure how it was going to hit with everybody else at the table because we did have let me see uh we had rob and his son uh who's eight and then mike was playing with us Yes, yes, Mike was playing with us, that's right. So three people that were new to the game. Um, Mike has a lot of background with board games, so I didn't really worry about him, but uh, Rob and uh, his son actually picked it up fairly well. Uh, Rob just had to discuss some strategy with him, and I think Seb wound up beating Rob. <laughs> and he, he actually had a really good uh, lucky draw early in the, uh, in the game. He did. So he's eight years old and I think picked it up pretty good as far as the, the general rule set. Um, like you said, needed some help with strategy, but it was fun watching him as he got a little further in 
Um, and he was definitely developing a very conservative style of play mm-hmm. with the pressure luck, but it was, it was fun playing with him. It definitely was. Yeah, it didn't slow down the game at all either, which was nice. So let's get into what we've been playing. And the first game that I want to discuss is one that you actually own and I don't. And that is Meadow from 2021. Plays from one to four players in 60 to 90 minutes. Designed by Clemens Kaliki. And artists are Carolina Kajak and Katarzyna Feibiger. Published by Rebel Studio. In Meadow, players take the roles of nature observers and take turns placing path tokens on one of the two boards. Placing a token on the main board allows the player to get cards, but playing them requires meeting certain requirements. Playing a token on the bonfire board activates special actions, which help to implement a chosen strategy and gives the opportunity to achieve goals that provide additional points. Throughout the game, players collect cards in their meadow and surroundings area. At the end, the player with the most points on cards and on the bonfire board wins. So Craig, what did you think about meadow? First of all, it's just beautiful. Um, The artwork's gorgeous. Um, I love that there's unique art on all the cards and just overall layout of the components in the board actually um, makes it pretty pretty intuitive with what's going on. I think the symbology is good. I, I think um, the board definitely tells you where you need to put things, both from a setup standpoint and a gameplay standpoint. I think that's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, from a rule set standpoint, very approachable. Um, I think this is on the easy end of midweight. I think somebody that isn't really into gaming may may find this complex, but for people with a lot of experience, you know, I think the rule set's easy, but I think there's a lot going on. It's light on strategy. Um, there's a few different routes you can take um, as far as having a lot of ground cards that maybe you build up a little bit or maybe a few ground cards that you build up a lot or you're trying to get all the goals or whatever that might be. And you may want to do one strategy, but your initial card set leads you to another. And that's not a problem at all because um, I think they're valid strategies. Um, but you're always left with just these good, juicy decisions about what you want to do tactically. And I think... A good chunk of that is driven by those turn tokens. So in a in a three player game, we each had five tokens, and you could use them either to get a card off the board or to um, do a special action. And the way that they interacted, where you could use one or the other, and then there were numbers on them. So you were selecting from the board, kind of like Quadropolis, where you'd pick a row or a column, and then based on the number on your token, you could go one, two, three, or four cards in from there to grab the card you want. And then each of those tokens had a different special action. So, man, I might really want this card that's two spaces in, but I really want the special action that's on my number two token. Um, And so you really had to plan out tactically what you wanted to do to get cards to either accomplish what you're trying to do from adding to your landscape or accomplishing some of the extra things like going for the goals. I don't like games with super tight economies. I like ones where you feel like you can do a lot of what you want to do. And this was just like, just right. So you always felt like you were making progress and you were getting a lot done on a turn, but you always wanted to do just a little bit more. So I think it was really just at that sweet spot for me um, with that. And then we also saw, and I really like this, that different strategies were working out well. Um, I think you are going for, give me a big, wide, many ground cards and, and build them up a little bit. I think I had a tighter ground area 
Um, you and I both went for all the goals and Rob went for none. And I know I'm mm-hmm. watching this game play out and I'm thinking so much like, how's he not going for these goals? See, there's no way he can win without these goals. And um, we get to the end and I, I forget exactly the final scores. I think were 53, 52 and 50 or something like that. It was a very tight game. And so I, I thought that was really good that we all kind of took a different approach and still kind of point wise landed very close together. The only nitpick I have, you're seeing all these cards come out and you're wondering what's that bug or, you know, is that, is that a ferret or a weasel, you know, and they actually provide a guide, a guidebook that you can look up the card number and it'll tell you specifically what the animal is. And it'll give you like a fun fact about it, which I think was really, really cool. But the nitpick I have is I just wish the animal names had been on the card, but if that's my biggest complaint about a game, I think they did pretty good. I uh, just looked up the scores and it was 53, 53 to 51. And you won a tiebreaker. I can't remember which one that was. So I will definitely agree with you on the artwork. It's gorgeous. It's approachable. It's definitely something that people will, again, we mention it a lot, but come over and look at and say, wow, what are you playing? It's very, very inviting. I really like the engine building aspects to this with the chaining requirements. I thought that everything, like you said, made sense. A certain animal might be attracted to something else might eat it um you know like one of the smaller animals might eat a bug and one of the larger animals might eat the smaller animals or there might be like a house that one of them is attracted to so everything kind of makes sense in that way uh, which was really nice and i think helpful for um you know less experienced players and i think i should have put that as well now that you're saying that this was very thematic. I agree with you. And that actually was also something I really enjoyed about it. They did a great job with that theme. Oh, absolutely. They did. It was, it was really, really well implemented. And again, I think it made it a little bit easier to teach for more casual players. They might need a little bit more assistance during the first few rounds of the game, but it's nothing impossible for people to pick up really. I I think it, it teaches very well. I'm wondering how this would play with four players. I played it solo, uh, which was fine. I definitely prefer to play it multiplayer, but I think four players might get a little bit crowded in this. That's the only thing that I would worry about. I think I would agree with that. Um, And I've only had the one play with three players, but um, two things come to mind with that. One is the goals trying to manage what's available and you've got four people going for each goal instead of three and then there is an element of wanting a specific card on the board and then um, somebody either takes it or takes the last space that you could lay a token that points at that card where you you could have used the row or column to claim it so i think you're Mm going to get um, forced out of the things you want a little bit more in that which, which might change that economy I was talking about earlier where, where I felt like I could get a lot done. Maybe that might go away a little bit at four players. Yeah, and I think the only thing that you would do to balance that, and I think they, they open up a couple more spots on the bonfire board that you're able to use, but um, still, that might still be a little bit tight. So it would be interesting to see for sure. And like you said, I mean, there were a wide variety of strategies. Um, I definitely agree with them. I think that there's there's just 
a lot of very valid strategies in this game. And you can't really go wrong, whether you go wide or grow tall. It, it's really up to you how you approach it. So really, really interesting uh, to see that. This game felt like the perfect length. It didn't overstay its welcome. I didn't feel like I was just building up my engine and everything stopped. It was the nice, perfect length, uh, which I don't see too often in games. And the other question I had for you was when I was going into writing the description for this, uh, it said in the description on BGG that there's envelopes with cards in them to open during certain conditions. Is that true? That is true. Um, I did not open them to look through them. Um, I glanced at the rules for them, and I would say it's like four micro expansions. Um, so they mm. all add um, a small rule or some extra cards um, or something along those lines. So I think for experienced gamers, really, you know, we, we could have just opened all four of them and thrown them in for the first game, and it would have been fine. I, I do, though, like to experience games and kind of just that you know, pure unadulterated thing to start as that first play, which is why I didn't do that. But mm -hmm. I could see me for future plays just opening all of them and forget about the conditions they put on them. Let's just play with it. Well, we might have to get this one out later. Uh, what did you think and what's your final judgment on this? This is a keeper. Everything I said before, I didn't get into the engine building, but that that is a style of game I really like. Um, and, you know, I think this could have a long life. I'm I wouldn't bet a ton of money on it, but I think there's some thought out there of, is this just the new hotness or does this have staying power? Um, I think this one could have some staying power. I, I think we'll see this one potentially win, you know, some awards at the end of the year. And, um, and I think it's with a solid company that's probably going to provide good support for it and, and reprints and things. So I think we could see this one going for, you know, at least five years of good talk, if not longer than that. And um, I see myself playing it for sure for a long time. All right, so let's move on to our next game, which is Juicy Fruits from 2021. Uh, Juicy Fruits plays with one to four players and is listed as a 20 to 50 minute runtime. The game was designed by Christian Store with art by Annika Heller. It's published by Deep Print and Capstone Games. In Juicy Fruits, each player has their own small island paradise where they grow delicious fruit. To win, you must gain the most points by cleverly supplying ships and by adding the best businesses to your island. Turns and Juicy Fruits work like this. First, you slide one of your fruit collector tokens a number of unblocked spaces and collect that many fruits of the tokens type. In this case, we have bananas, oranges, limes, pomegranates, and mangosteens. Then you may either fulfill the order of a ship on your shores or claim a business from a shared display and place it onto your island or do nothing. Filling ship orders unblocks your island spaces, leading to more potential movement and therefore more fruits, but concentrating too much on the ships might make you miss the promising businesses, which also provide bonuses and effects as they get snatched up by your opponents. Each of those businesses being purchased moves the license track down one, and the game ends once the license track reaches zero. Arwen, what's your thoughts on this one? So I had never heard of a mango scene before this, but uh, apparently those are things that exist. <laughs> I think I you were think in the same boat. I don't think anyone at the table had heard. Yes. <laughs> Nobody at the table. So I had to look them up, and they are a completely unique tropical fruit that I had never tasted before. I think 
somebody compared them to a uh, cross between like a banana and a pear in taste, which just seems wild uh, to me. But that's neither here nor there. So getting down to the game, I really like the action mechanism that's in play here. It's very unique. I'm a fan of spatial puzzles, uh, as you'll find out additionally later. But it's it's really a very unique mechanism where you move your tile a certain amount of spaces, you get that many fruits, uh, and then you're able to spend them on these different things, whether it's clearing up your board or whether it's buying these businesses up that give you special abilities and or points. The, the pieces are so chunky, so satisfying. I was really impressed to see uh, the quality that went into them. That was really, really nice and very, very satisfying to play with. Uh, setup can be a bit lengthy. It took us a while to... Uh, get the player board set up to get the main board set up, um, but I did find that it's worth it, as you'll hear in my final judgment. Very easy to pick up. I, I think people need to see a round or two before they fully get into it, but the core mechanism behind the game is very simple. You're moving your pieces, you pick up that amount of fruit, you buy stuff. That's about it. I really like the randomization of tiles, both on your board and on the main board, uh, which basically means that you're going to have a different strategy every single time that you play. It's not a standard open, you know, kind of opening move uh, type game. There's a lot of uh, a lot of different strategies that are going to be happening because of that randomization. I found that a lot of people are complaining online because there isn't a a lot of direct interaction between players, but I do feel like there's enough indirect interaction that it's really satisfying. There were a ton of times that we were taking each other's tiles. We were definitely fighting over everything on the board quite a bit. And I think the only other thing that um, was kind of a negative for me was that it did feel like it was over a bit too quick. It does accelerate very quickly. Your first opening moves are just kind of going through, getting fruit, you know, opening up those spaces so that you can get more fruit. And then, you know, once the game accelerates, it really, really accelerates very, very quickly. So, Craig, what were your thoughts? Overall, I liked it. I, I want to jump on what you said at the end there about you know the the quick acceleration and it goes. And I think there's there's almost two inflection points in this game. So you start the game by trying to clear pieces off of your board. You you your board is crowded. You have to make room so that you can move that tile as far as you can, so you can maximize how much fruit you get in a turn. And you need to make room for other things that come. So there's an inflection point where you say, okay, my focus needs to move from clearing my board to buying stuff on the main table. And then from there, I think there's a second inflection point that I think got missed um, mm-hmm. by most everyone. And I, and I think my actual suboptimal strategy won because of this. But there's a point, and I would liken it to Dominion, right, where it's like I need to stop buying cards for my engine and start buying point cards. And I think there's a big mechanism in here where you're producing ice cream. It was ice cream, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're producing ice cream with the fruit. And some of the businesses you buy, 
you can feed ice cream into them and make ice cream cones. And um, I feel like people didn't buy those early enough. And then even if they did have them, they didn't really start using them because they were still trying to do other things. And I think given the number of those available, I think there was probably an intention for that to be a pretty big point strategy there that Mm -hmm. nobody in our initial play went for. And so I won by just buying buildings that sit there and do nothing but just give you end-of-game scoring points, Um, which I think was probably suboptimal, but it worked because nobody was going after the ice cream and actually producing ice cream. So what are your thoughts on that? I think you're 100% right on this. And I saw it, and I could see where I was getting into late. And I saw all those points. It just all of a sudden clicked for me towards the end of the game. And again, like you said, too late, that there were a ton of points that we were missing out on. There's also kind of the control of the game aspect, too, that if you really feel like you can end the game quickly and win, you can just produce a bunch of... I can't remember what exactly it was. It wasn't ice cream. It was like shaved ice or something um, that used up just a lot of your uh, same fruits. Um, So if you had a huge fruit production engine, you could just go and jam those out, get a couple of points a piece for them, and really start cranking towards the end of the game. Um, But there were huge points that you could make on that ice cream, and we definitely missed out on that. I don't think... Any of us saw that until it was much too late to stop you. Yeah, but I would like to play it again for that, um, Mm -hmm. to see how that works better. I'd like to play it again. We didn't look at the rules at all, but the reverse side of the board had this whole new mechanic across the top that looked like you're sending fruit through a processing plant or something, like it was a communal space, um, which might lead to more of that player interaction. I I don't know, but it'd be cool to check that out. Um, But I I liked it. The, The puzzle on your board... You know, you're thinking through six or seven moves ahead of um, how you're going to slide those tiles around to maximize your moves by getting stuff out of the way, either by moving it out of the way or getting it purchased off the board. So you just completely clear one more space on the board. And so that was a cool puzzle. Definitely had to keep your eye on the other players and, and just watch what they're doing. Not that you're directly interacting, like you said. But you had to keep tabs on what was going on and what somebody might try to steal out from under you off that main board. Um, so that was that was fun, too. So I think mechanically it was interesting. I definitely want to try it again. I don't know if this would be a keeper if it was on my shelf, but I would gladly play it. Yeah, and, and I would agree. I like this one quite a bit. And I need to play some more of it with uh, you and some other groups and dive in just a little bit more. Explore some of those aspects that we weren't kind of aware of uh, to begin with. And then, like you said, that backside of just additional mechanics that might introduce a little bit more interaction too. I'm also looking forward to seeing what the solo mode has to offer. I know that there are some interesting uh, backsides to uh, some of the boards that give you some different options for solo play as well. So very, very interesting game. This one's absolutely staying on the shelf and uh, interested to see some more of Juicy Fruits. And the next game that I wanted to talk about was Borderlands Tiny Tina's Robot Tea Party from 2019. And say that three times fast. Uh, Players are two to five. 
in 15 to 45 minutes, designed by Adam McCrimmon, and the artist is Noel Pugh, published by XYZ Game Labs, the same people that produce Arch Ravels. So this re-implementation of Robot Lab, the card game, sees players taking the roles of vault hunters trying to assemble their claptraps with the correct parts first. You draw parts, arms, wheels, and heads, as well as action cards that help you find parts faster, remove unwanted parts, or catch up by removing or adding parts to other players' claptraps. The first player to correctly build their claptrap first wins. I said first twice there. Anyways, Craig, what did you think about Borderlands Tiny Tina's Robot Tea Party? It was okay. Um, it was not my cup of tea, honestly. So, you know, this How is How dare a you get to that take... pun before I do, by the way? Sorry, I had mm-hmm. to. <laughs> you know, it's that silly type of take that game that I probably actually would have really liked, you know, 15 or 20 years ago before I started seriously getting into to gaming um, as a hobby. Um, there's It's random take that. It's There's not a whole lot of strategy. Um, there's really not much in the way of tactics. I mean, you're kind of just looking at a couple cards and just trying to either, what's the thing that hurts my neighbor most or what's the, the is there a card in my hand that actually is one of the four that goes on my robot? So there's really not a lot going on um, for where I'm at in my gaming life now. Um, and I'm not familiar with the IP at all. Um, I didn't even know this was an IP until you told me it was an IP. So, you know, I think for me, this is a this is a pass. Um, but again, me, you know, 20 years ago, sitting around, you know, between college classes, you know, trying to pass some time, like this could have sidled up right next to, you know, all the euchre and other random things that, that we were doing back then to fill, fill the time. So um, it has its place, um, but not necessarily at my gaming table. Yeah, so I want to clarify that this was a review copy that was furnished by XYZ Game Labs. So for my take on it, I would absolutely agree. I I am familiar with the IP. I'll say that I really liked the instruction manual. I felt that the instructions with how Tiny Tina was kind of going through and adding little side notes to everything was thematically very well done. This says 13 plus on the box. I would say that this game is definitely accessible to much earlier ages than that. Uh, I think it's one of those legal restriction cases like we see a lot in the hobby. This is incredibly easy to teach to even the most casual of audiences. There's, like Craig said, lots of very chaotic take that play, uh, which has the tendency to be a hit with the younger crowds. Lots of blocking, removing pieces, which does lead to, especially if you're uh, really into the hobby and you like a lot of strategy games, potential to possibly stay a little bit past its welcome, uh, depending on how involved that you get with the game. I will say, though, that, like you said, this is something that, you know, 20 years ago, you know, or more when I was in high school college this would have been right up my alley i do see this as being a good way of getting uh younger kids who don't play tabletop games interested in playing something uh that's kind of adjacent to video games has that video game theme on it you know but isn't necessarily a video game so kind of getting them away from that screen time and getting them around the table 
you know, it wasn't terribly offensive. Uh, I thought that it was it was a, an okay game. You know, certainly not one that is. Again, Craig, like you said, my cup of tea as a uh, you know strategic gamer. But I do think that it does have its place, and I think it's probably leaving my shelf. But I think it was Rob that was playing it with us, and he said that he thinks that his uh, eight-year-old son again would be very interested in playing it and have a good time with it. So. Uh, it's probably leaving my shelf, but getting a home with somebody who did really enjoy it. So that was Borderlands Tiny Tina's Robot Tea Party. And the last game that I wanted to talk with you, Craig, about uh, was one that we've already had on the show before, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it because you played uh, the last time that we got together, and that is Monstrosity. So what did you think about it? So I think the same thing you said on the original review you did, I, I can't draw, so I don't know what's going on here. But, um, I, you know, it it wasn't that important. Um, I'd say, you know, most of the time it wasn't um, the best art that was winning. It, it really was that interpretation piece, which which was kind of interesting. Um, I, I always have a little bit of warning lights going off when things get into like that apples to apples type of you know thing where you've got the one person that's picking the best one out of the group there was a day that will live in infamy for me where i just unapologetically have not liked that apples to apples thing it was the day that the word religious came out and i played the word church and didn't win um (laughs) somehow mountaintop is more religious than church and uh yeah and and just like I was never the biggest fan of those types of games, but that was the day that just sealed the deal. And so anytime I start a, a rule set and see that, I always worry. But this this didn't do that. And I think part of the reason that that didn't drive hard that direction was because of the dual vote. Because you have not only the person giving the description picking, but you also have the crowd picking amongst themselves. Um, and and so I think you don't get that that thing where you know, one person can sit there and, and try to uh, negotiate why their thing's better than everybody else. Um, and it's it's blind voting. You can't blo- vote for your own, you know. So I think I think that's that's pretty good. Um, so, yeah, this was fun. Um, and part of that fun, too, wasn't just out of the, the drawing and the gameplay. It, it's the shared experience with something like this of just the silliness that comes out of how people think to up to describe just the odd things that are on these cards and then how different people can interpret the same words differently. So, so that was, that was actually a fun thing. Always just when you're first doing that reveal and seeing what everybody's drawing, it's, it was a good time. And this, this lands in solid party game material for me, you know, like things like just one, right? So it's like, you can just pull it out and play it as an activity. You know, the score doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Just, just play rounds for as long as you want. People can drop in and out whenever. So yeah, lots of fun. I really enjoyed this. Well, it's definitely good to hear your thoughts on this, Craig, and we're looking forward to having you on some more to give some more discussion on games, and thanks for being here. Say Absolutely. It's uh, it's a lot of fun um, getting together, gaming with you, and uh, being on the podcast with you. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. And coming up next, we are going to have a couple additional reviews. Stay tuned. Well, there are two additional games that I wanted to talk about today, and the first one is Rove from 2021. 
It is a solo game that plays in 15 minutes, designed and artwork by Dustin Dobson and Milan Zivokovic, and published by Buttonshy Games. Rove is a solo spatial puzzle game. In each game of Rove, the player will face a series of mishaps that can only be solved by arranging the six module cards in a specific pattern. Moving a module requires movement points gained by discarding cards from your hand for the listed amount. Players may gain additional points if their current module layout matches the pattern shown on the discarded card. Each module costs one movement point per activation and uses its own unique movement style, such as only moving diagonally or pushing other modules a single space. Modules also have powerful single-use abilities that can help get players out of a tight spot. Players will win if they can complete seven mission cards. So this was a review copy furnished by Button Shy ahead of their Black Friday launch of this game. And when this says spatial puzzle, it does mean a puzzle. Uh, it is very mentally taxing, and we'll talk about that in a minute. This was extremely quick to learn. I was up and running in less than 15 minutes of reading. Uh, the gameplay is tough, but definitely in a way that you would expect from a good solo game. Uh, there are a lot of layers in the strategy to unpack. There's the special movement rules of the individual modules, so balancing them, uh, to the pattern matching on discarded cards to make sure that you have the optimal movement points from them. So it, it's really a lot to think about, a lot to process, but definitely in a good immersive way. The artwork immediately drew me in. Uh, it's very reminiscent of uh, an indie video game uh, with the Rove character very clearly taking center stage on each card uh, as the least detailed thing on it. Uh, it's basically a little rover outline, and then it has two white circles for eyes, and then you have the rest of the background, which actually seems a little bit more detailed than your main character. But Rove is on each and every single individual card. Check my Instagram page if you want to see more. So you can kind of see some of the pictures and, and see that detailed artwork for yourself. Very, very unique, interesting artwork style. Additional missions are stacked up such that the artwork uh, actually continues from card to card and makes a linear story, uh, Rose Journey, which was also really, really neat. And then expandability. The Fantastic Flora expansion allows you to refresh your spent module abilities if you have them exhausted, which I will say is incredibly handy. Those are some really great one-time abilities. You're, you're going to need them. So having the ability to uh, flip them back over is really, really very handy. Uh, it introduces a endurance mode, which was very interesting uh, to play as well. So I think the main drawback that I had to this game was that you do potentially need a lot of space to play uh, without having to shift everything back into place. So much like a rover, your card grid is actually going to be moving around quite a bit. Uh, so you do kind of need to consider that as you're getting this out making sure that you have a decent amount of space to be able to move those cards around. 
But overall, I, I really thought that this game was very mentally taxing, but in the best way possible. This is landing a spot in my purse right next to Sprawlopolis uh, for another quick but uh, brain-burnery game, and it's absolutely one of Buttonshy's better solo games that I've played. If you're interested, you can find it at their site on Black Friday. They are having a sale on it. I believe they have 1,800 copies, and once those are gone, uh, they will be printing some more, but you're going to have to wait. So, uh, really, really interesting game. This one's going to be coming out quite a bit, and I'm very, very happy uh, that it is in my collection. It's not going anywhere. That is Rove. And the last game that I wanted to talk about was Lawyer Up. And it plays from one to two players in 60 to 75 minutes. Designed by Samuel Bailey and Michael Nade. And artwork by Vincent Christians, Sean Simmons, and Matt Zellinger. Published by Rock Manor Games. In Lawyer Up, players take on the roles of attorneys facing off against each other in a courtroom case. One player takes on the role of the prosecution, and the other takes the role of the defense. Each case has its own unique mechanisms and story from murder to racketeering. Players start with the discovery phase, where they will go through all the evidence of the case and draft what they think is most important for them to win. The players will then take turns calling and questioning witnesses, building arguments by chaining together cards with the same symbols, and earning influence. Attorneys then spend their influence to sway the biases of the jury to their side of the argument. There are different win conditions based on the type of case that's being played, but in general, you're going to want to sway those jurors to your side. So again, this was another review copy that was furnished by Rock Manor Games, just to give you a heads up. I have not seen a theme of legal drama uh, really successfully implemented until now. This was a outstanding implementation of your courtroom drama. Uh, very, very well-themed, really makes you feel like you're in a legal battle uh, with your opponent. Uh, the mechanical core of the game itself is really a tug of war with the 12 different jurors. So basically trying to get everybody over to your side. That's really the essence of the game. There are some limitations I did see to this game. Uh, since you do have to match a previously played symbol, uh, players could be limited by a bad draw, and this was probably my biggest uh, negative on this game. Not being able to line up symbols uh, without terribly many mitigation options. Uh, there are, you can arguably draft a hand that really sticks to one to two symbol types that might be able to help this a little bit uh, instead of drafting a high influence uh, card for yourself maybe really paying attention to those symbols and really taking those into consideration so that you can make those chains uh, would help. I did need to go back to the manual a few times for this uh, for clarifications, but everything that I needed was pretty easily accessible. Uh, there is a online video by Rodney Smith that you can go to to learn the game as well. So I definitely did watch that and that did help immensely. 
The solo play was interesting. Uh, it worked for learning the game, but the two-player mode is absolutely where the meat of this game is at and where it's going to really, really shine. There is a very rich story that is told by the cards, uh, and the fact that some evidence could potentially help one side or the other uh, that gets buried during the discovery phase. Uh, so discovery is really just drafting. Uh, you're going to take one card for your side. You're going to give one card to your opponent, and then you're going to bury one of those cards. And there is a potential to get to those buried cards, but it's, it's very much an exception. So the fact that you're kind of burying evidence and saying, eh, we're not going to look at that, I, I think that was really cool. And it does help tell a new story every single time. You're going to see different evidence. You're going to see it played differently. And, and the theming of the cards and the way that that story is told was, was really, really good. And this does feel like a game system that can go multiple different directions in both time and subject content. I know that there are two expansions that are out already, one dealing with witch trials and the other dealing with the mafia, I believe. So think of Chronicles of Crime and Time Stories. This can go in multiple different directions. I think there's a lot of potential for expandability here, and there already has been some. So for my final thoughts on this, it's a wonderfully themed uh, two-player game, and I think I'm going to pick up some expansion content the next time I'm able to. So this one is absolutely staying on the shelf. That is Lawyer Up. And I think that's about all the time that we have for today. If you want to learn more about Cardboard Time, please make sure to visit our website at cardboardtime.com. Our Instagram and Twitter is at cardboard underscore time. You can look on BoardGameGeek for our podcast page. And any questions, suggestions, or ideas for discussion topics, please email cardboardtime at gmail.com or get a hold of us on our other social media. And as always, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in another two weeks for another episode of Cardboard Time. Happy gaming.